0: Good news, my new book is almost here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth. And while it doesn't officially come out with Sounds True until May 7th, you can pre-order it now. And when you do, you'll receive up to $500 in additional gifts and resources to support you on your healing journey. I wrote this book because in the four-year span between 2016 and 2020, I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked every area of my life, health, relationships, finances, career, social status, and even my very identity. Along the way, I experienced firsthand just how dysfunctional our culture's relationship to loss really is. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success, Shackled with isolation, and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and evolution, not only as individuals, but as a species. So, this book expands the conversation around grief and loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we cover those too, to include falls from grace of all kinds personal, professional, and collective. This includes the end of a relationship or job, death of a loved one. A natural disaster or a war, infertility, abortion, or a financial crisis. Also, when we're going through hard times, we're encouraged at every turn to hurry up and get on with it. But by trying to power through these messier seasons of life, we're denying ourselves the very answers to our healing and growth. Whether you're experiencing hardship right now, or you know that you have past hurts that are holding you back and still need healing, this book will support you. Handbook for the Heartbroken will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. Within the loving pages of this book, you'll have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. You can download your free chapter now and pre-order the book to receive all those bonuses at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. That's handbookfortheheartbroken.com. I also want to add that pre-ordering the book now is the very best way that you can support me as an author and the health of this book when it enters the world in May. It signals to booksellers to stock the book at that time and in turn, make it available to more people who need it. So thank you for your pre-orders, thank you for your support, and I look forward to continuing to deepen together in this important conversation over the coming months. Hello, welcome to the Sarah Avon Stover podcast, a space to come home to your inner wisdom. I'm Sarah, bestselling author and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality. And this podcast was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. Here I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations about all different facets of the feminine spiritual journey. But above all, I created this because I believe that when a woman gets still and quiet enough to hear her inner wisdom, she's able to live her true path in the world. I hope this podcast helps you do just this. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you. We always start our conversations with a personal check-in. So I'd love to hear from you where you're joining us from today and how you're doing at the levels of body, heart, and mind.
1: I am in Solana Beach, California, my hometown. And in body, I'm feeling fullness, and heart. Uh, I feel a lot of openness and gratitude, and also fullness, body, mind, and spirit. Is that the last one? Yeah, body, mind, and heart. Heart. Uh, So my mind, uh, my mind is probably the most challenged of the three, just because I've been talking a lot. Uh, And so sometimes uh, I have to sort of consolidate my energy to keep my mental focus so that my mind doesn't get out in front of me. But overall, I feel very uh, cheerful. And yesterday my book came out. So there's lots of celebratory energy and fun new things happening.
0: Great. Well, congratulations on your books Birth into the world and I I loved reading it. Thank you thank you for sending that my way and um just, we're gonna talk all about it today. So but before we head into that, um, I also want to highlight that we are talking while we're still in this pandemic. So I know just vaccines are on the rise and the landscape is shifting but I'm curious if you can share with us some things that you have found to really be supportive for you during this time.
1: The most supportive things for me right now. And like a lot of people, I was displaced during the pandemic. So I was living in Brooklyn and I moved back to San Diego and all my stuff is still in New York, um, all my physical stuff. So I've experienced a lot of change, uh, like a lot of people have. Uh, Nature, so just being outside, it's kind of like nature is one place that's safe, and I don't have to wonder about that, or my system's not wondering about that. And also just friends. Um, For me, I've always said friends are my food. And as I wrote the book and learned more and more about polyvagal theory, I learned how that is actually true. Uh, so yeah, friends and nature have been two huge tools for me. I think the other enormous help is just understanding the nervous system so that I have a wide frame of understanding what my own system is going through and what a lot of other people's systems are going through.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I know we'll, we'll unpack some more of those pieces in our conversation. So to get there, I want to, um, just start by introducing your second book called Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Power, and Use It for Good. Great title, great cover as well. And um, I want to, before we go too much into it, I want to touch on your first book. It's called The Fourth Trimester. And it was helping women to heal after childbirth and to really honor that fourth trimester. And I know that came out of your own journey into motherhood. And uh, it's definitely true in my own life that my teachings or that my books come out of experiences that I've been through and then can help support others through. So I'm curious, what was it about your own journey that, um, that brought you from the material in the fourth trimester? to this new
1: book, The Call of the Wild. The new book and the fourth trimester actually have a lot in common, although they wouldn't necessarily appear to from the surface. It's an increasing awareness of how many parts of my own life and training came from a male perspective, but presented as if it was a universal perspective. And then working with so many thousands of women now, helping them recover from birth injuries, gynecological surgeries, losses, miscarriages, uh, and sexual boundary ruptures. And realizing that even that training was coming from a male perspective and females were kind of the identified patients, kind of like us trauma healers are up here worrying about the poor people experiencing these things and how many ways that needed to be worked through. So the first book was about restoring this piece of a female journey that culturally has been sort of lost. And I believe that same thing is happening with this book is how are we going to be in relationship with each other and have a common language to do that, whether that's parenting or sexually or intimately or in work. So my own personal experiences, my big T trauma, kind of the one that turned my world upside down was when I was in college and I was sexually assaulted. But I've had a lot of other um, experiences where I was in a freeze state prior to that and after that. And I just recognized that there was something specific to being female that had to do with how I could renegotiate that. And wanting to take that back for myself and for other women so that we're actually the protagonists of our experience, even if we find ourselves in the victim position.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I know just, I mean, I can relate to that. I also had a sexual assault experience in college. And then just like you said, little like micro versions of that. And I know so many, so many, so many women have. And I'm curious if when you're talking about the, the male perspective and the male approach to healing trauma, um, what, how would you define that as just, I know there's a lot of different approaches, but just generally speaking.
1: Well, when it comes to specifically the trauma world, there's a lot of emphasis on down regulation. So a lot of emphasis on doing things that soothe you that, um, calm you down, slow you down, slow your valve system down. Spirituality kind of dovetails onto that a lot of the times, because I think that when you're coming from that perspective where maybe you have a more habituated fight response and maybe you have more collagenous connective tissue, then for you, it makes sense to try to slow yourself down. Um, And in spiritual practice, a lot of the energetic direction is bringing things from the ground up and trying to lift up out of the pelvis and of course, as we know, many of the traumas specific to women are happening in the pelvis. So an instruction to lift ourselves up out of it is taking us farther away from the potential of being in the body, which is where we need to be to renegotiate the trauma. And then I just think when you're in a position of structural power, it's hard not to realize that your perspective is clouded by being in that position of power So some of the trauma teachers themselves have been perpetrators. And to me, that's just kind of obvious because like we don't know how to handle power well in our culture. So it's hard for them to see outside of the perspective of this, you know, I'm standing here as the healed person healing everyone else rather than we're all in this position of healing this together.
0: And then what... What have you found? And I know that that your book goes into this in depth, but um, just generally speaking, what is the approach that you have found for your own healing and for the women that you work with that has been so transformative and different from this other
1: approach? Well, definitely adding in the pelvis. So in the body work that I do, I actually work internally with women. And that's radical. Cause I was a rolfer before that. And we worked in noses and mouths, but we never worked in the pelvis and in yoga. Lots of my, my particular training. I know there's some people that do feminine um, practice is like, okay, yoga nidra where you would actually not just say the words pelvic floor, but you would use, the words of female reproductive anatomy so that it's another way of unshaming it and including it into our whole proprioceptive map we've tend to le- leave this leave genitals and female organs outside of these maps as if the male like and like right now i'm giving a lot of talks on the nervous system and so i just have a female body with the nerves in it most people have never seen a female form with the nervous system they've either just seen the nerves taken out of it or they've seen a male body with the nervous system because it's just like, well, female is extra. We have these extra things and it's different. So so basically centering the female-bodied experience, number one, and then number two is helping us learn how to tolerate activation. So we actually add activation into the system to expand our capacity rather than focusing on all of like long exhales and, you know, long hot baths and yoga nidra and all these things is like, no, how do we actually expand our capacity to hold charge?
0: And what have you found was um, helpful for expanding our capacity to hold charge? Like what, and how did that, how did that discovery start within you, and just your own your own life, your own journey, your own exploration?
1: Some of it started with my daughter because I was feeling really uh, put upon by having to do discipline, and discipline seemed to be something that was like exhausting for me. And so there was really a split inside me between the part of me that felt like I was. A mother, And it was easy, very easy for me to be emotionally attuned and to give unconditional love. But it was hard for me to hold boundaries and to create what felt like discipline to me. So I went to a somatic practitioner and I was saying that, you know, I'm a single mom and I have to be both of those things. And it just feels like so tiring to have to hold these boundaries over and over. And he just said, you're a Jaguar. I'm from the Amazon and you're a Jaguar. Look at you you have gold skin and you're spotted and it's the females that teach the cubs to hunt. And so he just basically collapsed the split and said like, because to me it was like, Oh, one person is doing the hunting and one person is doing the the caring. And like if the female cats are teaching the cubs to hunt, he said, you know, go home and watch videos and see how the, the females, how they're at, how they are with their cubs. So just that feeling, you know, and so many women express that when it's like they don't, it feels too tiring to tell their partner what they want in sex. It feels too tiring to tell their kid to stop putting their hand up their shirt. It feels too tiring to have one more interaction with the doctor where they tell you it's not what you think it is kind of thing. And so that feeling of exhaustion, while it, in some senses, you know, being a single mom is exhausting there was some, it was a different kind of exhaustion that I could feel. And I was like, okay, I need to learn how to hold boundaries. I've this, this flexibility that I have is a learned response to having a mother who's a steamroller and knows exactly what she wants and how she wants it all the time. And so I never really, even when I expressed my needs, those needs weren't really listened to. So it was just easier not to even express them. And then in relationship just with one other child, um, I had developed a personality where it was like sushi or pizza. I don't care, whatever, whatever. And then to have her then interpret that in her system, be like, well, I get whatever I want all the time and translate that then out into the world wasn't going to, wasn't working well for her or for me, because for her, it translates as a lack of safety. And for me, um, it was just allowing me to be in less of a position of authority and right authority So that's where it started was like flexing that ability with her. Like more agency. More autonomy, more agency and more healthy aggression. Mm -hmm. So a willingness to have aggression and to play that out with her. So wrestling with her, holding her down. And people get really freaked out even by that idea because our culture is so mixed up when it comes to touch and when it comes to healthy authority Um, I was never suffocating her or harming her. I was pinning her down and having her feel a sense of containment and be able to move against me until it was time for her to to be able to move and let her feel what, I mean, you know, nowadays everyone's got weighted blankets and all these things because we want to have a sense of containment. And as a a child, you need to know that your mother can both dominate you and take care of you uh, as well as listen to you. So that's where it started. And then, you know, lots of things noticing, for instance, I had a total aversion to doing capital B breath work. First of all, I was just like, come on now, like we've been doing pranayama for thousands of years. Is this really that different? But I was avoiding it. And then when I would go and do it, I was like, oh yeah, like my system actually can't take this. And I'm yawning and falling asleep and um, falling out of cadence And realizing that that's also a renegotiation, so it can be helpful, but recognizing that there was um, a kind of power in myself that was much harder for me to access than the sort of universal awareness um, and dispersiveness. So it was much harder for me to coalesce my energy than it was for me to disperse it.
0: Yeah, and so you bring this metaphor, metaphor of the jaguar, and I love that story that you tell in the book of of that um, that therapist or that that you were working with that that names you that. And so the central metaphor in the book is of a wild animal, and specifically of a jaguar. And I like that you use a me- this metaphor because it doesn't have a cultural charge to it. Can you speak to? Um, Can you speak more to the use of this metaphor so much so that it's the name of your book, but what what is it to like return to this wildness, to this jaguar essence within us?
1: So for me, the predator energy is represented by a jaguar. Some people like to think about wolves or other kinds of um, hunting animals. Wild animals don't experience trauma, but humans and domesticated animals do. So for me and for most women, because if we've been in a prey role, we're very reluctant to be in a predator role. And that showed up in my session room over and over again. I recognize that even though we might be feminist and we might be a jaguar in in many ways that we show up in our life, or we might think of ourselves and we might say to ourselves, like, my body's my own and I decide who touches me and all those things. Our body actually might not be communicating what our mind thinks. So the Jaguar energy is felt sense energy where there's not self-doubt and there's not back and forth about, should I do this or should I do that? You, can, you actually have intact self-protective instincts that you can rely on. And so to me, there's a very visceral sense to that. And that's what I teach people how to do is how to, how to stalk. What does that mean? How does that feel in your body? What does it mean to know what you want and go for it and attack it and get it? and the language is very, can be very provocative, and people have asked me to use different language, like, why don't you call it the huntress, or this or that, but I feel that it's important, because predators and prey actually have a relationship to one another, predators don't take more than they need, our idea about a predator, which is like a Harvey Weinstein, that's a person who's not wild, they're feral, that's someone who's completely out of balance in the natural world, that's not that's n- not normal. And it's also not wild. So we distrust wild, but we're mistaking those two things. Ferility is, peop- is wild that's come close to domestication. A regular wolf in the wild doesn't kill more than it needs to eat. A wolf in a hen house is a feral wolf. So it gives us a clue to what we might need to restore our own systems when we find ourselves in a prey mode or rabbit mode or however you want to describe that, that we know, oh, so we are by default in one part of our nervous system, but we actually don't have the capacity to stretch the full spectrum. And that's really what the book is asking for. It's not that we need to be in predator mode all the time. Jaguars don't hunt all the time. Jaguars hang out, they eat, they sleep on trees, they teach the cubs to hunt. It's not so often that they're hunting. And the same goes for the prey, prey are out there, rabbits are out there chewing grass and hopping around. And they're not wondering when the next wolf is coming around. They're not avoiding the last field they got chased. They're just living their best rabbit life. So um, it's not about being one thing all the time. And people often, especially for women, they go, oh, that's like the alpha female. No, it's not. That's a, an overcompensation. This is, this is like rooted energy, where you can rely on your own instincts and you feel comfortable in your own skin.
0: So it's, it's about just returning to our natural instincts where it's like we're, we're conditioned, we're educated to just be more in the prey role, most of us as women. And so we've, we've lost the connection and there's even just a taboo around being in the predator role. So it's just restoring that, that natural range that's already within us but that that has been educated or trained or out or just been, we've just rejected it. Exactly. How has your life changed since you activated this this larger range within yourself?
1: It's an interesting question Um, because it's not, there's not like a before and after moment But I do feel that compared to my first book, you know, my first book, I wrote about an experience that I didn't have that I wish that I would have had. And I hope that many other people do have. But this book is like, I am the Jaguar, like I own this book. So it's a gradual process. How has my life changed? I think it's um, the outer world reflects my inner experience more. So It's not confusing. Like, and I think before people would tell me like, oh, you're so mellow, you're so calm. It's so relaxing to be around you. Um, But I didn't necessarily feel that in myself. I think also people reflected back to me my intellect a lot more, whereas now people reflect back to me my power or my heart. They feel more of the wholeness of me rather than just like, oh, you're super smart, which to me never felt very satisfying because I didn't really value my intellect that much because number one, I didn't work very hard for it, but also number two, some part of me knew that even my intellect was a trauma strategy. So the fact that I was so smart was partially because I was uncomfortable socially and uncomfortable in the realm of the body. And that's where I fled to. So as I've relied on that less and come more into my body I get a more accurate reflection of my own power
0: Mm -hmm. like you're just inhabiting more of yourself
1: and the world is able to experience
0: that as a result and reflect that back to you
1: yeah I'm also it's a lot easier for me to know what is mine and what's not mine um because I do tend to have, I am parasympathetic dominant. I do have very elastinous connective tissue. I do tend to just be very vast. Like it feels like the molecules inside of me are very, there's a lot of space between them. Uh, I know how to take care of myself better. So I know that because I have those puzzle pieces, I don't spend so much time like recriminating myself for those things. It's just kind of like, well, this is, this is the nature of who I am. And so here's what I need for myself based on this. But also because I'm not so much in my default responses, it's easier for me to just see like, oh, this person's nerv- This is this person's nervous system. It's not actually about me. Like my, my dad is very dorsal in his system. He's very, um, he tends towards depression. He doesn't talk very much. He's oftentimes in his own inner world. And if I walk into my parents' house, sometimes he won't look up from what he's doing and he'll just be like involved in his book and his iPad or whatever. And I'll say hi. And then he might respond or he's just into what he's doing. I notice, oh, I'm starting to tell myself the story that he's disgusted by me or that he doesn't like he's rejecting me. But then when I could track my own system, I realize, oh, I'm interpreting the fact that he's not making eye contact with me and he's not adjusting his physical posture to greet me as a rejection. But in fact, it's just his own system. It's his own lack of capacity to socially engage at this moment. Um, and just so many examples of things like that where I have really big energy and something really great happens. And, you know, I'm so excited about it. And like, maybe I'm so excited that I'm crying and laughing at the same time or jumping up and down. And then both my parents just turn away from me and walk away. And like, instead of feeling like, oh my gosh, they're not proud of me, which is, makes me start to feel it's like, oh, their range for how excited or how much energy they can handle. They just, they're maxed out. And so that's why they're distancing themselves from me, but it's not me that it's not personal to me. So when I can see it as nervous systems reacting to nervous systems, then that to me, that gives me a lot of freedom because then I, what I do is I just do it with someone else. Like, okay, that didn't go well. So now I'm going to call my friends and tell them to put on cool in the gang and do a reenactment and reopen the box kind of thing.
0: That's awesome. I want to read something um, from just the first few pages of your book and This comes after you were telling a little story about a, a pregnant woman who was one of your clients who was experiencing anxiety, and she was doing all these things to manage her anxiety. And you said, well, you could keep doing all those things to manage your anxiety, or you can just deal with the anxiety. I love that. And you wrote, in my life, I had also done yoga, meditation, and talk therapy, as well as chanting and mantras. All these practices helped me feel somewhat better. I loved most of them. What I didn't realize until later was that I had become dependent on them. I needed them to feel good. I was using them much like medication that helped me get somewhere my nervous system couldn't get to on its own. I also couldn't figure out why everyone else thought I was so calm and peaceful while on the inside I was so full of self doubt and inner conflict. Deep down, I knew that I was a joyful person And I was frustrated not to be able to access that joy more of the time. I had all the reasons to feel good. Really good parents, a career I loved, a beautiful child, an excellent education, and everything that comes with white privilege. Oftentimes those facts that I was well aware of made me feel worse. It wasn't until I experienced somatic work, soma means body in Greek, that I knew what it was like to feel good as a baseline. The better I felt, the more I recognized the depth of the disconnection that I had gotten used to living with before. Can you talk to us about this, coming across this thematic work and what, I know it's a vast topic, but what, what it is and what, what it is about that that really shifted things for you and allowed you to feel more of this congruence
1: between outer and inner? The first somatic experiencing, session experience that I had, because I'd already done EMDR and for quite a long time, I'd done all kinds of things. I just could tell like, this is totally different. And it was weird because, you know, Soma means body. Okay, well, but I was a dancer and I was doing yoga and I was doing all things that could be considered somatic practices. And that's one thing I think is important is like anything can be a somatic practice. It's just a matter of if you're actually in your experience. I was really good at doing micro movements and creating a really complete proprioceptive map. And I think that all those skills helped set me up for the somatic work to be as powerful as it was. But I wasn't, it's it's a bit hard to explain because, you know, I'd also done a lot of sitting practice, but all of that had trained me into neutrality. So I was, when a practitioner would say, well, do you like that? Or you don't like that? It, I wouldn't be, I would be like, I don't know. Or, or it would even annoy me. Cause it would be like, well, is that painful? It's like, well, yeah, but I mean, I sit, I've done sitting practice for 14 hours a day. So like, yeah, it's painful, but who cares kind of thing. Like, that's why I'm in, I had trained myself into a functional freeze where I could, I mean, and I and it happened in childbirth, where everyone around me in my birthing room thought I was doing great, but on the inside, I really wanted help and I wasn't doing great. But I was too far inside to actually ask for what I needed, and no one there could interpret that state. No one there knew me well it enough. Read or, you.
0: yeah, right. could read
1: that. And then I'm really into ice immersion. And, like, the first times I got in the ice, it was people are just like, Who are you? And I'm like, Yeah, I can just do this. I can just put myself in this place. And, like, I'll be here till the end of time. Like, people have to tell me to get out because my mind is so powerful and strong. But it's also because I was really adapted to that physiological freeze. So, I've really changed how I work with the ice once I built, you know, at first it was like, okay, let me see how long I can stay. Once I got to, you know, over 15 minutes in 32 degree water, it was like, okay, this is dumb. Like, it's like, who cares? That's a long time. It's a long time. And like, who cares? I mean, really is, is it, it's making me a better person, a nicer friend. Like now I, okay. I know I'm a badass. Great. Like check that box. Good. You can do this. Okay. Now what? So now I know how to work with it, where I get in, I actually let myself respond. I do what everyone else is trying not to do because everyone else is trying to like minimize their response and like look cool and like make, you know, I'm cool, calm and collected. I make myself do the opposite and I make all kinds of noises and I swear. And then the first impulse to get out, I actually do get out and I run around and then I get back in. So I do like, I like behave the opposite of what everyone else is trying to do to try to get my system to understand, okay, register the discomfort, respond to the discomfort, get yourself warmed up. Because for me, the tolerating the cold is like really easy. It's the actual warming myself back up, which is the sympathetic response. So I do it in, in cycles now, but you know, just to even know, oh, super interesting because anyone who, who leads people in ice is like the women do way better than the men do. Yeah. Duh. Because (laughs) we're wired for childbirth. So obviously we've got some wiring in here that knows about how to, expand our capacity for extreme experiences but also like if we need that healthy fight response with which most of us do then we need to be able to bring that into practices so that was a circuitous answer but basically i'm so curious i mean i just can't imagine that because most people come to spiritual practice from a place of suffering and oftentimes at a place of a rupture I know there's so many people that would be having a similar experience I'm always so curious what these practices like who would I even be right now had I like been doing them from a healthy baseline Uh, it's a very fascinating inquiry the thing is I'm not really drawn to do discrete practice anymore um, because I don't need it so it's sort of like I would much rather be out hiking in nature and moving around than sitting still concentrating on something because I did that for so long and it doesn't ultimately make me feel more connected with the earth and with all of the beings on the earth being by myself alone in my internal world. What makes me feel connected is being outside and having great conversation and being with other people.
0: i to take a quick break from this conversation to let you know about a virtual retreat I'm leading this May in partnership with the Shabala Mountain Center based in Colorado, and it's called the Deep Rest Retreat. This is happening the weekend of May 22nd and 23rd, and in line with today's conversation with Unique, I want to offer this retreat because I know so many of us, especially women, are experiencing deep exhaustion. And simply being a human being can be exhausting, especially when we live in a culture that condemns rest. Add to that a pandemic an ever quickening pace of life, plus any other curveballs that might be thrown our way. And we're lucky if we don't burn out at best or reach our breaking point at worst. And as we all know, doing too much and too often takes a toll and creates hormonal imbalances, illness, relational distress, tanked creativity, as well as more emotional and mental suffering. So during these tiring times, let's gather together to revalue and reclaim the sacred practice of deep rest will replenish every dimension of your being, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And this weekend retreat will include inspiring wisdom talks, women's yin and slow flow yoga, Buddhist meditation, journaling, ample time for self-care, nature walks, group sharing, and sacred silence. Within this container, you'll have the space, inner and outer quiet, inspiration, supportive sisterhood, and guidance. You need to make rest a more regular and regarded part of your life. All self-identified women with all levels of yoga and meditation experience are warmly welcome. And if you can't attend live, recordings will also be available afterwards. Plus, to make these teachings accessible to all, a sliding scale is available. You can learn more and join this retreat at shambalamountain.org. That's shambalamountain.org. S-H-A-M-B-H-A-L-A dot org, and there's also a link in the show notes. So let's talk about that. You know, and when when you were sharing your your check in and the things that have helped you the most during this pandemic, you mentioned friends and like that friends are medicine, and that that relates to polyvagal theory. Can can you can you unpack that a little bit for us?
1: Sure. So. What polyvagal theory showed us is kind of two different things. One is that our normal autonomic nervous system understanding from high school that sympathetic is fight or flight and parasympathetic is rest and digest is a mixed metaphor. So, like just when I was talking about the ice, a sympathetic reaction is also, yes, it's a fight or flight reaction under stress, but when you're not under stress, that's what gives you energy, motivation, drive, forward movement, power, and Polyvagal theory showed us that under stress, the parasympathetic system in the dorsal branch, which is the back of the body, is our freeze or collapse response. So that's like playing possum or dead or you know, um, when you evacuate your bowels or faint at the furthest possible extent of the reaction. But it also showed us that we have a whole other branch of the nervous system that we didn't know about before 1994, which is the social nervous system. And that's the ventral vagal branch. So it's heart and above and it's our orienting apparatus, our, our what actually turns our head and neck and then our eye, the muscles around our eyes, the fine muscles in our face and our ears. It's developed from maternal bonding so that we're super receptive and attuned to our babies. And because these human Babies rely on us for so long. uh, We need to know how they're feeling and they learn how they're feeling from us because their survival depends on it. So as females with estrogen, which estrogen is a bonding hormone, we're more attuned to that because of the survival element. And therefore, on the flip side, when we're under threat, we're also more prone to the default responses, which are fawning and fitting in. So fawning is being very nice, um, getting closer to a threat because a known threat is actually less dangerous than a threat that's wandering around out there. So as people with less structural power, whether that is female or non-white, we're likely to do things and take on behaviors that make us less threatening to the person in power so that we can survive and we're in less danger. And then fitting in, which is camouflaging. So minimizing hiding, um, maintaining sameness with our social group or our relationship or however it is that whoever it is that we're in relationship with.
0: Mm -hmm. And Related to the polyvagal theory is the the practice. I love that that you bring this practice into the book of vooing. I love (laughs) vooing. I wonder if you can talk more about what that is and why it's helpful and maybe even lead us through
1: a few rounds of it. Sure. Vooing is a way to potentially vibrate the enteric nervous system. So uh, the parasympathetic branch is diaphragm and below. So it's really, you know, the sympathetic energy is a lot of times in the limbs because if we're going to fight or flee, we're going to do that with our limbs. Whereas the parasympathetic tends to be more torso. And if we're using VU, um, the idea is that we could get it to resonate in our digestive organs, in our sex organs. uh, And, because the parasympathetic under threat is freeze, then we would be meeting the freeze at a layer that it's, uh, gently rocking it and giving it the chance to maybe come out of freeze. So I like to give the example cause I'm not a very good cook. And so I actually have tried this. It doesn't work to take a frozen chicken out and put it in hot water. Um, just FYI PSA, if anyone here is wondering, um, you got to thaw something out in like room temperature water. It does, you can't rush it. You can't thaw it out faster, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so vooing is like that. You know, yeah, you can do Kapalabhati and you can do all kinds of like intense breath practice. But if you're trying to get to a layer deeper, you're going to need something a little bit gentler and a little bit subtler. So voo is one of those things. So should we give it a go? Mm-hmm. So the other thing is your tone. So in my book, what I'm really trying to get across is that we think we're personalities that are communicating, but we're actually nervous systems communicating with each other. And our nervous system communicates through the tone of our voice, the content of what we're saying, our facial expressions, and our body carriage. So when you're vooing, you would also want to bring your tone as low as you can without... Strain. The. And then just noticing on a sensation level what happens after the voo. So the most important part of any of the practices is the time after the practice. So then you can see what happens in your system. So you might notice rocking. You might notice a change in temperature. You might notice a difference in the content of your thoughts. And then just notice where your attention gets drawn. And it's like if you throw a pebble in a body of water, that's what the practice is. And then you want to wait until all the ripples are gone before you start something again. So you would want to wait until you feel like, okay, the impact or effect of that voo is now finished before doing another one. But since I'm not in the same room with you uh, or anybody who's listening, we'll just go again <laughs> and hope that we're on average at the right pebble moment and when you do it this time you can bring your hands up and bring the your thumbs and your fingertips together and then as you make the sound you can gently open and close your mouth and open and close your hands at the same time so the voo will change its sound because your mouth shape is changing so the sound will change but you're just matching the opening and closing of your mouth with the opening and closing of your (coughs) hands
0: can I ask you why
1: why we're doing that uh, because we're moving up the we're moving up the cascade so if vooing is the least amount of charge in the system then we're escalating the amount of movements because healing freeze and flight responses eventually is cycling up into a fight response
0: mm-hmm.
1: and also the nervous system really receives novelty so we could, we could just keep repeating Voo and see what happens because even repetition will escalate. Um, but for some people having, it's like the difference between doing meditation and asana or something. Like if you add, add something, then for some people that might be the thing that helps them get over a threshold. Vu-a. Just noticing again. I'm in a yawn. Uh, uh, Noticing if you have any impulses, like if there's movement that's already happening in your body or if you have an impulse to move. Imagery. Sensations. So Lots of times people ask, like, well, what's the difference between oming and viewing?" for instance? And I think that's a really good question. Uh, I also can't give an answer that's really experiential other than Peter Levine, who's the founder of Somatic Experiencing, which is the kind of trauma resolution work that I study and practice. He does this in almost every session he gives. So part of it is because he's getting older, and so he knows what works and he gets there faster. Um, but obviously, there's something about it, or else it wouldn't have persisted for this long. So, fun facts about Boeing.
0: It just feels different in my body than oming. Like I really feel it in my in my guts, like the like with the warmth, the energy, and oming feels higher up in my body. It feels more. Yeah more expansive and this feels more rooting in
1: I agree with that and I feel that too but I also did ohms for so long so I had like thousands and thousands I mean can you imagine how many ohms we've done in our life it's like I mean hundreds of thousands so it's sort of hard for me to say because that's what I feel too but I'm like well but I did that so many times and I've done I've probably only done like 10,000 voos or something
0: <laughs> right
1: right well,
0: thanks for, thanks for leading us through that. And taking the nervous system a little further, um, you, you use the the colors red and blue. And I, I love that as well. Cause it also, it's just a neutral way of starting to name our experience of if I'm in red or if I'm in blue and, um, can, can you, can you lead us through that a little bit? Like what is, what is red? What is blue? And, you also talk about just noticing more of the blue. And I love the, the stories that you shared around how you do that.
1: Red is red and blue are from somatic experiencing. So red is what we consider what's painful and blue is what's pleasurable or what feels good. And as I mentioned earlier, for me, that was really hard for me to tell at the beginning because I was just kind of neutral about everything. Um, I mean, certainly in my day-to-day life, there's things I liked or didn't like, but my entire spiritual training was about non-attachment and that was... Equanimity. Yeah. So it took me some time to be able to decide that I liked a sensation or didn't like it. But um, what we know about healing trauma is that we have to be able to feel things that feel good in order to actually renegotiate the things that don't feel good. And when we are able to anchor ourselves in what is blue, then and protract the experience of what is blue, then it gives us more space in our system to renegotiate the red, and the red actually is doesn't seem as red once we get to it. So, you know, everything right now is training us into what's wrong. We have to be very active to protect ourselves and our space in order that we're not in what's wrong all the time because. You know, the news, the news reports things that aren't going well. It doesn't report things that are going well. Um, You know, there's just so many ways that we could be caught up in what's wrong all the time. And our nervous system is getting trained in that direction. So we have to stretch out the things that feel good. And it's not spiritual bypassing and it's not Pollyanna optimism. And it's not this, like, it's not manifestation. It's moment to moment tracking of what, what is working because for you and I to sit here together, no matter how much of a mess our lives are or our health are, we still have a million more things going right in our system to even allow us to be here. So it's really that simple of just taking a moment and again, and it's not a gratitude practice or a gratitude list or anything like that. It's just like right now, wherever you are, is there anything that feels good? And then if your mind is kind of scanning around and you can't find anything, then just take another moment and think, okay, is there anything that feels good? And of course, the the pendulum is going to swing. So the minute you find something that feels good, it's going to go back to like, oh, but what about this thing that doesn't feel good? And then you go, okay, yeah, and back to what feels good. And then you let it go. And like, if if people are listening and you only take one practice away from this talk, I would say that it's what one of my teachers, Steve Hoskinson called the blue sandwich, which is that you look in the world around you, literally, like you let yourself, you let your eyes wander and you notice something externally. So in my sight right now is a tree. Okay, palm tree, give it its beat, name it. And then go inside. That's one piece of bread of the sandwich. Find something that feels good. Okay, warm frontal abdominal layer. Give it its feet. And then immediately go back out. And so you just don't even give yourself the chance. You don't give the system the chance to flip back red. So you just go blue, snap, and back red. If you can't find anything blue, then just go for something that's less red. Because these are all relative, it's like yin and yang. They don't exist without each other. So every red has a blue, and every blue has a red. It's happening all the time, and and once you know about this, you'll notice this in interactions. You'll notice it inside of yourself. Is that our own system is doing it for us all the time? It's just that the pendulum is a little offset. Well, maybe a lot off center where it's just going red and then just tiny into the blue and then back red and then tiny into the blue. So this goes for things that are really good too. We just anything that's stretching our system beyond the capacity of what we're used to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, one of my old teachers in feminine spiritual practice, when she was leading us through a practice, she would ask us to scan for what feels good. And she would, she would always say, if you can't find anything that feels good, that's what your earlobes are for. Because, like, earlobes always feel good and open, they just can't feel bad. So, putting that out there if anyone's yeah, looking for something.
1: Go so
0: for your earlobes. Yeah. So, let's talk about sex. That's the last chapter in your book, and it's called More Freedom in Sex. And I so agree with you how you said we, we we talk about sex like it's something on the periphery, like it's some extra little category of life, but it's actually the foundation of everything. And um
1: can you speak to us about why that is, how that is? Well, I'm curious about why you agree with me. Uh, <laughs> I think that it it is that for me. And I don't think it has to be that for everyone, but I think that it would be great if we at least had that choice. And so many of us are reacting to our past, whether it's personal or familial or cultural or religious. And we're bringing all of that into the, and our politics into the present moment. That has nothing to do with our animal nature. It has nothing to do with our actual bodily, physical wants and desires. It just has to do with all of this, all of this layers of imprint after imprint. And so I hope for everyone that we could take off some of those scripts and imprints so that we could get closer to what it is that's actually ours. And sex just happens to be a place where there's a lot of activation. And in some cases where there's a lot of activation, there's tons of opportunity for repair. So um, arousal energy is healing energy. And when we're in that arousal energy, much like birth space, there's just so much material that's at the surface that's available for us for deep connection and repair.
0: Yeah, and I, I I agree with that. And what I what I find in my own sexuality is that that is that is where I feel closest to my vitality. In that sense, that just like raw, undomesticated way, unlearned way. It's just that like animal nature that you're talking about, and that that's the area where it's just um,
1: it's just there. It's just there. I think so many women know that. And even if they haven't experienced it, they have that felt sense of like, there's so much in this treasure chest of sex, but I just don't have the key to get into the treasure chest. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I am really trying to help people have is ultimately it's nervous system tools. It's ways to understand what your experience is because most people go to sex and it's like, depending on if you're in a relationship or not in a relationship, there's so much that's tangled up in there: attachment, desire, you know, just proximity to another human at this point, touch, companionship. um, So many different layers of ourselves that are tangled up. And then we come with all that intensity and we wonder why it's not going well, because we haven't, there's no context for it and we don't have a common language for it. So that's what I'm really trying to help people with is is to understand from a visceral sense how they could communicate from their present moment experience rather than what are what their mind wants them to want. Right, lots of people come to me and they want me to help them want something, but I'm never I never it's never my job to make somebody want something they don't want. It's my job to help them find out what they do want. Right. That's, that's the red. It's like people come with the red and then they want to be in the red and wrestle around in the red with me. And I'm like, Hey blue, like, what do you, what do you like? What is working? You know, what is your favorite thing? Okay. You don't like this, but, and then when we can expand, like, uh, you know, my favorite question is like, how can I make this even more wonderful? You know, like, how can this be even more wonderful? then it's like the dog, the, the dog is out of the, the bone is out of the dog's mouth. And then it can be like, Oh, well, what's, what's over here. So there's just so much potential for growth and play and expression and spontaneity available to us insects. And the way that we've structured it as a culture is so one flavored very narrow. Yeah.
0: So what's like, what's one little practice that women listening can maybe just start to apply in their sex lives?
1: That's such a hard question because everyone's at such a different stage of, of their own self-exploration. I mean, the stereotypical advice is like what everyone's thinking I'm going to say is like, self-pleasure practice and, you know, expand okay. your self-pleasure practice, which at this point makes me want to stick my finger down my throat. Although I do think self-pleasure practice is great. And, you know, I am in a relationship, but my boyfriend lives in another continent. So self-pleasure is a major way for me to be moving my energy. Um, you know, I guess what's coming to me right now is that as women, we really I mean, over a lifetime, we speak twice as many words as males do. We just think that if we just process it a little more, say it one more time, talk about it more, that that's the thing that's going to get us what we want. And part of coherence is when you're angry, you're actually angry. You be angry. You don't be like really composed about it and like calm and like explain why you're angry because then the other person doesn't really understand that you're angry because you don't seem angry. Or when you're sad, you're just actually really sad instead of talking about being sad. Um, so giving yourself permission to be the thing that you are, not to be the polite composed version or, or it's, it's very subtle, right? Like I, I don't really care that much about being polite if I'm in a, in a relationship, but it's like, there's power that kind of comes in containment too. Like if I can be, I'm really angry, but I'm going to be really contained about it. There's a bit of a power in withholding in that too. So it's really important that our expression is A full expression not a digested preformed idea of that expression and you know I think knowing you and knowing probably the people that are interested in listening this is particular quote-unquote advice for this crowd not for every crowd right but um that's what I would recommend thank you um Kimberly, what is your current growing edge? I got a whole bunch of them lined up in front of me at the moment. What are Uh, they? Uh, Well, I have a 13 year old daughter. So, mothering a teenager is a lot different than mothering up to this point. So, there's lots of growth edges there. Um, and specifically because she's very influenced as you know, she's Gen Z. So she's very influenced by, um, she thinks everything. She thinks gender is a social construct. She thinks, um, sexuality is a social construct. She thinks you should be able to choose your sexuality and your label and then change it back. She thinks you should be able to change your pronouns and change them back. And that's really in um, in some ways, at odds with how I see um, how I see things, so it's a growing edge to hold space for her own points of view and her own autonomy and who she like. Right now, I don't want the vaccine. She wants the vaccine. Um, so letting her have that, also recognizing that I have an extremely mature thirteen year old. So she seems like she's like sixteen or seventeen, and like reminding myself again and again, like this is a child. And there are certain things children can choose for themselves and there are other things children can't choose for themselves. So that discernment is a challenge for me. And then, but at the same time, offering to her what I do know about biology and what I do know about physiology and what I do know. And so, you know, holding that space between letting her be herself, but also coming from a place of someone who's lived 30 odd more years and, something that's really about something that's really important to me. So that's a huge growing edge because it's almost a daily conversation in our house. Cause she has several transgendered friends and um, non-binary friends. And I'm personally really concerned about how female adolescents are dealing with the pressure of being adolescents right now and how, um, and, and how, I'm, I'm concerned about our cultural love for testosterone. Basically I'm like how we just, we just love testosterone and anything that's getting away from est- estrogen and oxytocin is like where the culture is going. And it's so much happening in the neofrontal cortex with morality and ideology. And it's very abstracted from the body. And so that concerns me. I'm concerned and I'm concerned. And what I talked to her about is like, I'm very concerned with, the fact that like woman is now a word that is contested so hard, what it means to be a woman, um, to use the word woman, pregnant women um, is like it's for lots of people. It's not good enough to just say women and pregnant people. It just wants to be only pregnant people. And how quickly, again, we're giving up our our authority when it comes to our pelvises. Mm-hmm. So that's a growing edge. I mean, I'm also teaching with my mentor next month, Peter Levine. That's a pretty gigantic growing edge because um, he's 75. And a lot of the work that I've developed is not in opposition to what he says, but as a result of pushing the paradigm farther. And so that's been a very interesting experience and how I can be with him and be respectful and not fond. Um, that's really a challenge to my nervous system. i I feel like I've been trained and, and I like to be very devotional and respectful. And at the same time, if I'm being, if I'm showing up as an equal, how does, how is that in my system? So that's a pretty big growing edge. I'm having a huge party on Saturday. Uh, I never had a wedding, so I've never had like a 200 person party. Um, That feels like a pretty good, pretty big growing edge at the moment.
0: Those are some big ones. Yeah. And what's what's next for you? I know that your book just came out yesterday. So maybe you just don't even want to <laughs> think about that.
1: Well, there's some things that are already in the works. So I have a journal that's coming out with my first book, the fourth trimester journal. So that comes out at the end of June. It's super beautiful. The illustrations are done by a woman, Joanna Johnson, um, who lives in Sweden. And she's, they're all black and white, archetypal prints so that's really awesome and then i have a six to eight hour audio program coming out with sounds true called reclaiming the feminine embodied sexuality a spiritual practice um, that'll come out in winter 2022 so that'll be a while um those are like kind of like the external what's next um, the internal what's next is like a giant re-examination of how I'm spending my time and energy because those two, the journal's already done. So it's just coming out. And then the audio is, you know, just a four day recording session. So other than that is like, okay, um, what do I want my life to look like right now? It's all about responsiveness and just getting the word out as much as possible. And my daughter is, um, you know, she's of course around and with me, but there's not a lot of fun and play and like, there's moment to moment fun, but basically, you know, she's going into high school. I have four years left with her. So how do I want those four years to be? Um, and my plan is, you know, to reduce the amount of things that I'm doing, but we'll see if the universe is, uh, (laughs) going to be on board with that.
0: That sounds like really great stuff. And so I'm going to put links to everything in the show notes. But for your book and other things
1: that you offer, where can people go to get your book and to learn more about you? My website is my full name, The You get the first chapter for free there, KimberlyAnnJohnson.com slash chapter. Um, I teach courses where I teach people how to activate their inner Jaguar and that's at camberleyannjohnson.com slash wild. And then the book, is it all the, all the bookstores? All the and I'm on, places. I'm on the socials quite a bit at, at this moment in time, walking around the world in my Jaguar suit.
0: Nice, nice. And any final words that you want to, to leave our listeners with?
1: I think with the word trauma, there's a tendency to either over-associate with it or under-associate with it. And for a lot of the people listening, I'm imagining that they're deep seekers and people who care a lot about the world and each other and maybe have a propensity towards intensity. And I think for me, it's been really helpful to recognize that sometimes that that ability to be in shadow work and that desire for intensity is actually keeping me in the red rather than allowing me to experience all the blue that's out there to experience. So, so much of my life, I was trained out of believing that the external world mattered much and that my internal world was more believable. And that's where I had power in. I was the microcosm of the macrocosm. So, if I just did my internal work, the world would change. I think that the moment that we're in is really showing us that the external world is worthy of our attention. And that pendulation of outer world to inner world for me has been one of the most helpful reference points for all kinds of things. So, I would offer that to the listeners.
0: Thank you, Kimberly. And congratulations on your new book and blessings on everything that's to come. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me and for taking this time out for yourself. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you'd take a moment to rate and review this podcast. That way other women who might enjoy it can better find it. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.